Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Hello, and welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture at the Academy Awards in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. And we would be myself, Blaine Dowler, and my co-host, Trey Hooks. How you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. How are you today? I'm doing well. So this time around, we are looking at The French Connection, directed by William Friedkin, with a screenplay by Ernest Tidyman, based on the novel by Robin Moore, which was itself based on a series of real-life events. It stars Gene Hackman, Fernando Rey, Roy Scheider... Tony Lobianca, and Marcel Bazuffi. It was released on October 7th, 1971 in the United States. And the basic plot is as follows as provided by the kind editors over at Wikipedia. In Marseille, a police detective follows Alain Charnier, who runs the world's largest heroin smuggling syndicate. The policeman is murdered by Charnier's hitman, Peter Nicoli. Charnier plans to smuggle $32 million worth of heroin into the United States by hiding it in the car of his unsuspecting friend, television personality Henri Devereaux, who was traveling to New York by ship. In New York City, Detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle and Buddy Cloudy Russo go out for drinks at Copacabana. Popeye notices Salvatore Salboca and his young wife Angie entertaining mobsters involved in narcotics. They tail the couple and establish a link between the Bocas and lawyer Joel Weinstock, who is part of the narcotics underworld. Popeye learns that a massive shipment of heroin will arrive within two weeks. The detectives convince their supervisor to wiretap the Bocas' phones. Popeye and Cloudy are joined by federal agents Mulderig and Klein. Devereaux's vehicle arrives in New York City. Boca is impatient to make the purchase, while Weinstock urges patience, knowing they are being investigated. Charnier realizes he is being observed. He makes Popeye and escapes on a departing subway shuttle at Grand Central Station. To avoid being tailed, he has Boca meet him in Washington, D.C., where Boca asks for a delay to avoid the police. Charnier, however, wants to conclude the deal quickly. On the flight back to New York City, Nicoli offers to kill Popeye, but Charnier objects, knowing that Popeye would be replaced by another policeman. Nicolai insists, however, saying they will be back in France before a replacement is assigned. Soon after, Nicolai attempts to shoot Popeye, but misses. Popeye chases Nikolai, who boards an elevated train. Popeye shouts to a policeman on the train to stop Nikolai, and then commandeers a car. He gives chase, accidentally crashing into several vehicles along the way. Realizing he is being pursued, Nikolai works his way forward through the carriages, shoots a policeman who tries to intervene, and hijacks the motorman at gunpoint, forcing him to drive straight through the next station, also shooting the train conductor. The motorman has a heart attack, and they are just about to slam into a stationary train when an emergency trackside brake engages, hurling the assassin against a glass window. A battered Popeye arrives to see the killer descending from the platform. When the killer sees Popeye, he turns to run, but is shot dead by Popeye. 
After a lengthy stakeout, Popeye impounds Devereaux's Lincoln. In a police garage, he and his team tear the car apart piece by piece, searching for the drugs, but seemingly come up empty-handed. Then Cloudy notes that the vehicle's shipping weight is 120 pounds over its listed manufacturer's weight. They realize that the contraband must still be in the car. Finally, they remove the rocker panels and discover the hidden packages of heroin. The police return the car to Devereux, who delivers it to Charnier. Charnier drives to an old factory on Ward's Island to meet Weinstock and deliver the drugs. After Charnier has the rocker panels removed, Weinstock's chemist tests one of the bags and confirms its quality. Charnier removes the drugs and hides the money, concealing it beneath the rocker panels of another car purchased at an auction of junk cars, which he will take back to France. Charnier and Sal drive off in the Lincoln, but hit a roadblock with a large contingent of police led by Popeye. The police chase the Lincoln back to the factory, where Boca is killed during the shootout while most of the other criminals surrender. Charnier escapes into the warehouse with Popeye and Cloudy in pursuit. Popeye sees a shadowy figure in the distance and opens fire a split second after shouting a warning, killing Muldrig. Undaunted, Popeye tells Cloudy that he will get Charnier. After reloading his gun, Popeye runs into another room and a single gunshot is heard. Title cards describe the fates of various characters. Weinstock was indicted, but his case was dismissed for lack of proper evidence. Angie Boca received a suspended sentence for an unspecified misdemeanor. Lou Boca, Sal's brother and accessory to the handoff, received a reduced sentence. Devereaux served four years in a federal penitentiary for conspiracy, and Charnier was never caught. Popeye and Cloudy were transferred out of the narcotics division and reassigned. You almost need the law and order sting at the end of that. Yeah, it's very much about the case. In the heat of the night, we talked about how there, there was that one scene where they open up personally and admit that really they have nothing else in their lives but their jobs. Here, we get even less of a hint of what happens off the job. Mm -hmm. We know that there's some. You know, Popeye seems to... He entertains women, but doesn't seem to be picky about whether or not it's the same woman each time. Yeah, one of the things... And we can talk a little bit more about it when we get to the nominations. But one of, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Gene Hackman. I I wonder, after watching it this time, was his performance really that great, or did it stand out so much? Because his was the, his was about the only character that they gave any background and meat to at all. Him and maybe Charnier. Yeah, it was definitely what they call the two-hander. Where there's other characters on screen, but it's a Popeye versus Charnier story. There's no doubt about that. And apparently, well, the, the names were changed, but the police officers that the Popeye and Cloudy were based on, whose nicknames are Popeye and Cloudy, it's just the birth names that are changed. Mm -hmm. Popeye uses a few racial slurs here, because that is an accurate representation of the police officer it's based on. Apparently they had to do multiple takes of every scene where that is because Gene Hackman visibly cringed every time one of those words came out of his mouth and it took a long time for him to finally deliver it straight, which I actually like hearing. It's nice to know that Gene Hackman is a decent guy, at least in that respect. Oh yeah. You know, it's a minor point, but I didn't get the feeling that that was that the blonde that Boca was running around with was his wife. I mean, I, I guess it could have been her going out with a wig, but I figured that was his mistress on the side. Yeah, uh, I got the impression that he was with multiple women, despite being married as well. 
because that's one of the tactics they I don't think Popeye explicitly mentions it, but that's one of the tactics that they try and take is and I actually like this kind of quite a bit was Cloudy kind of trying to flirt and flip the wife. Yeah. It it was a different approach and it's one that it works. And some of this I don't know, it the film seemed a little bit odd. I don't know. Before we get into that, I guess, what is your personal experience with the film? Is this the first time you've seen it or no? It, it's the second time I've seen it. So I'm sure I've probably mentioned on the podcast before that I uh, worked at uh, Suncoast Motion Picture Company, which was a video retail store. And I was a customer there before I worked there. And most movies had two price points, either $15 or $20. And they would run a two-for-22 sale a lot on their $15 films. And I would buy just about anything during that sale before I worked there and had an employee discount. And I know I bought French Connection Sight Unseen just because of its reputation and watched it. And that would have been like 94, 95. Okay. Yeah, it's my second viewing as well. The first viewing was actually when I was doing a film studies course. This particular movie didn't show up in the course, but we watched The Conversation. Mm. And our prof said, well, if you enjoy that, I would also recommend this. And I really enjoyed The Conversation, so I picked this up based on that strength. And we can decide whether or not this is the year to have that conversation, but I prefer The Conversation to this one. I did not like this as much the second time around as the first. And I really think that's down to the pacing. There's all it if it wasn't an actual thirty minute, it felt like a thirty minute long stretch of Hackman or excuse me, Popeye just kind of on stakeout outside trying to watch Charnier on his shift. And this is before the great scene to where, you know, he comes he comes back, the other detectives are supposed to be watching Charnier, and Charnier completely walks past them. So he so he's trying to find follow him and they have that great cat and mouse game on the subway. This is before that. And you know, maybe it's just because, you know, when I watched it the first time I was a student at school taking classes in the afternoon and working nights, so I'm home alone with a, you know, three to four hour stretch to where I could watch a film, you know, without interruptions. And as you know, with a family, that can be a little bit harder to do. But I I just, I felt a real drag um, during that part. And I started to check out of the movie. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience. The first time I watched this, I rated it an IMDb and I rated it as a nine out of 10. And watching it this time, it felt more like a seven. There are some slow parts. I think a lot of it is just that I don't know, some of what feels interesting and exciting are set pieces. So like you said, the cat and mouse game on the subway is fantastic. It is a decent car chase, which is not historically accurate to the true events. That's something that they had to insert into the script or the movie wouldn't have sold because they, the networks thought they were too slow. So they, they got it done by distorting the history a little bit by adding the action i just found i said the second time through those highlight moments like the cat and mouse game on the subway and things like that or you know the way popeye sets up his meeting with his informant 
raiding the bar and dragging the guy into the bathroom, those highlights don't buoy the film as much the second time through as they did because the low points in between do tend to drag. Well, and I think it also suffers from how innovation ages a little bit. So, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from the chase scene that's essentially between an elevated train car and the car on the street down below. But that scene doesn't crackle as much 30 years on with several different entertain, um, with several different imitators with better technology behind them. Yeah, I, I would say that too. That's part of it is the, the groundbreaking elements. We've seen that ground broken so many times and improved upon that even though you know it's the first in a lot of ways, it doesn't quite ring true. Or it doesn't have that same emotional appeal. There's what you know intellectually, and there's what you feel when you're watching it. And there's a bit of a disconnect in this one. And I just felt like, I, I know that Friedkin watched Z or Zed, depending on your point of origin and how you want to pronounce it, and really wanted to kind of make this more of a documentary-style film. I, I just felt like it needed more judicious editing. We don't have to see Popeye Doyle from birth through the police academy or anything like that, but just... There's all those throwaway lines. Your hunches have a way of not playing out, Doyle. And the, there's that one federal agent who just con- consistently want, keeps busting his chops because there's some kind of bad blood between the two of them. And just getting more about that, or even giving Roy Schneider's character a little bit more to do, I think would have improved things. Yeah, or even the the way that shot. So that same federal agent who's the the bad blood is because in some previous case when they were following one of Popeye's hunches a law enforcement officer died and then at the end Popeye accidentally shoots the officer who's holding that against him and Scheider's character Cloudy says that was Mulderig and Popeye's like okay well gotta get the bad guy and moves on and even the title cards there's no indication that there was any fallout for that friendly fire incident so it, it makes me wonder that bad blood that they never did was that set up just to to foreshadow the climax and just turn it around. It just or, or why were they taken off of narcotics? Was it because Moldig was accidentally killed? Because I'm not saying that's not a tragedy, but they still had one of the biggest heroin bust in history. And it's not their fault that, according to the title cards, half the people that were caught were let go or pled down. I mean, maybe real life doesn't work this way, and maybe it was being more realistic. But you would, you know, I'm not expecting the, we see an end scene where they're being given a medal by the mayor or anything like that, but to get transferred out of the department? Why? You know, just something giving some more flesh around that and I I haven't seen it John Frankenheimer made a French connection to which had Gene Hackman in it maybe that gets into some of this but yeah, honestly I haven't watched that but when I picked up the French connection I picked it up in the two pack so I do have both of them I haven't watched the sequel because this didn't feel like it would work with the sequel and honestly with Popeye running into that back room and you hear the gunshot and then it just cuts to the title cards 
I even wonder if the title cards were Friedkin's idea or if those were forced on him and he wanted to leave it ambiguous with Popeye running in, you hear the gunshot, and that's the end of the film. That would have been a good ending. Did Popeye get Charnier or did Charnier get Popeye? Yeah, and I understand, based on a true story, you don't necessarily want to leave it open-ended. But I just felt the title cards were out of place, and I I just think the French Connection story, that to me, that would have been more engaging if it just ended with the gunshot, no title cards. But then the existence of a sequel that has Popeye would just totally throw out that ambiguity. You mentioned the title cards just made me think about this. I know that the actor who plays Charnier is in the sequel. I wonder if Frankenheimer just completely retconned this film, because the title card in this film says Charnier was never apprehended. Yeah, it's possible. I'll try to get around to watching it when I have time someday, but since I'm back at work tomorrow and we still have a one-year-old... Yeah. It's <laughs> but... actually one year in one week as of the day of this recording. That, that just didn't occur to me when we were watching it, but or, or um, when I was watching it and prepping for the podcast. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of I, I'm kind of interested now if that if that undoes the ending of this film. Well, you know what? We could probably look up a plot synopsis if we want. So shall we run through the awards ceremony for the year? Yes. All right. So the forty fourth annual awards were presented on April 10th, 1972 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Helen Hayes, Alan King, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jack Lemmon. Best Picture clearly went to the French Connection, that's why we're talking about it, and that beat out A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, and Nicholas and Alexandra. Best Director went to William Friedkin for The French Connection, beating out Stanley Kubrick for A Clockwork Orange, Norman Jewison for Fiddler on the Roof, Peter Bogdanovich for Last Picture Show, and John Schlesinger for Sunday Bloody Sunday. And talk about a list of directors that are still part of the conversation 50 years later. Best Actor went to Gene Hackman for his role as Popeye Doyle, beating out Peter Finch for his Sunday Bloody Sunday, Walter Matthau for Koch, George C. Scott for The Hospital, and Chaim Topol for Fiddler on the Roof. Best Actress went to Jane Fonda for Clute, beating out Julie Christie for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Glenda Jackson for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Vanessa Redgrave for Mary Queen of Scots, and Janet Susman for Nicholas and Alexandra. Best Supporting Actor went to Ben Johnson for The Last Picture Show, beating out Jeff Bridges for The Last Picture Show, Leonard Frey for Fiddler on the Roof, Richard Jekyll for Sometimes a Great Notion, and Roy Scheider for The French Connection. Best Supporting Actress went to Cloris Leachman for The Last Picture Show, beating out Anne-Margaret for Carnal Knowledge, Ellen Burstein for The Last Picture Show, Barbara Harris for Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me, and Margaret Lighton for The Go-Between. Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously Published. So this is The Hospital, one by Patty Chayevsky, beating out Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, Clute, Summer 42, and Sunday Bloody Sunday. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium went to The French Connection beating out A Clockwork Orange, The Conformist, The Garden of Finzi Contenus, and The Last Picture Show. Best Foreign Language Film went to The Garden of Finzi Contenus. That was an Italian film, beating out Dodas Caden by Akira Kurosawa. The Emigrants, directed by Jan Troll, The Policeman, directed by Ephraim Kishon. 
and Tchaikovsky, directed by Igor Telenkin. Best costume design went to Nicholas and Alexandra. Beating out Bed Noms and Broomsticks, Death in Venice, Mary Queen of Scots, and What's the Matter with Helen? Best Documentary Feature went to The Hellstrom Chronicle. Beating out Alaska Wilderness Lake, On Any Sunday, Raw, and The Sorrow and the Pity. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Sentinels of Silence. Beating out Adventures in Perception, Art is The Numbers Start with a River and Somebody Waiting. Best Live Action Short Subject went to Sentinels of Silence. Beating out Good Morning and The Rehearsal. Best Animated Short Subject went to The Crunch Bird, beating out Evolution and the Selfish Giant. And we're now in the era where Disney and Warner Brothers are no longer regularly making animated short subjects. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these are international. Best Original Dramatic Score went to Summer of 42 by Michel Legrand, beating out Mary Queen of Scots, Nicholas and Alexandra, Shaft, and Straw Dogs. Best Scoring, Adaptation, and Original Sound Score went to Fiddler on the Roof. Beating out Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Boyfriend, Tchaikovsky, and Willa Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Best Song, Original for the Picture, went to the theme from Shaft. Beating out The Age of Not Believing from Bedknobs and Broomsticks, All His Children from Sometimes a Great Notion, Bless the Beasts and Children, the title track from that film, and Life is What You Make It from Koch. Best Sound, Fiddler on the Roof won, beating out Diamonds Are Forever, The French Connection, Koch, and Mary Queen of Scots. Best Art Direction went to Nicholas and Alexandra, beating out The Andromeda Strain, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Fiddler on the Roof, and Mary Queen of Scots. Best Cinematography, Fiddler on the Roof, beat The French Connection, The Last Picture Show, Nicholas and Alexandra, and Summer of 42. Best Film Editing, The French Connection, beat out The Andromeda Strain, A Clockwork Orange, Koch, and Summer of 42. And Best Special Visual Effects went to Bedknobs and Broomsticks, beating out When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. And uh, for the honorary awards, Charlie Chaplin received an honorary award for the incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures, the art form of the century, who, and Chaplin, came out of a self-imposed exile in Switzerland to receive the award and remarket some of his older films. And he got a 12-minute standing ovation when he showed up, which is the longest in Academy history. So, for the multiple nominated films, Fiddler on the Roof, The French Connection, and The Lost Picture Show got eight nominations each. Nicholas and Alexandra got six. Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Mary Queen of Scots got five. Clockwork Orange, Koch, Summer of 42, and Sunday Bloody Sunday got four each. And The Andromeda Strain, The Garden of Finziconitis, The Hospital, Clute, Sentinels of Silence, Shaft, Sometimes a Great Nation, and Tchaikovsky won two each. For the multiple winners, The French Connection won five, Fiddler on the Roof won three, and The Last Picture Show, Nicholas and Alexandria, and Sentinels of Silence each won two. So, that's the rundown of the awards for this year. So, do any of those particularly stand out? Yes, you know, I'll just start from the top. I don't think French Connection should have won Best Picture this year. And, you know, depending on where the blame for the pacing problems that we talked about lie, it doesn't. It probably also doesn't deserve either Best Director or Best Adapted Script. And I know that sounds harsh, but I've connected better and enjoyed more A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, and The Last Picture Show. Okay. I would say that's fair. Before we get into it, I should mention, when I was going through the score, 
I just missed the, our list of the films. So yes, Fiddler on the Roof won the best adapted score. And I should have mentioned that that was actually uh, done by John Williams. Mm-hmm. It's not his first nomination, but it is his first win. Okay, that's what I thought. I was looking up. So, yeah, that's uh, a name we'll hear a lot of in the coming years. But yeah, I would agree. I haven't seen the last picture show. I have seen French Connection, Clockwork Orange, and Fiddler on the Roof. And I would say, especially upon a rewatch, French Connection is the weakest of the three. Fiddler on the Roof I've only seen once, but it's I would say it's one of the last of the great musicals. It's extremely charming. Yeah, for this, just looking at this year, I don't understand why Clockwork Orange didn't take it home. For picture, for director, I don't understand why Malcolm McDowell wasn't at least nominated for actor. Yeah, I mean, and I haven't seen all of the nominees for actor. I don't have an issue with Gene Hackman winning, um, but if Haim Topol won, I would not have objected to that either. I know we'll get to it, but I think they split the Golden Globes because of how they do, you know, comedy and musical versus drama. I, out of the performances that I've seen, so I haven't seen sometimes a great notion, but I, I think they got it right with Ben Johnson for Best Supporting Actor. I'm just kind of scrolling through to see if anything else um, stands out. It seems like a funny choice, but I think time has proven that, you know, if nothing else, they got best song, our best original um, song, right. People still know the theme from Shaft, you know, but I don't know that anyone really knows, you know, any of those other songs. These songs from Dead Noms and Broomsticks that I remember are not the age of not believing. Yeah. I, I think that one, they submitted the wrong song for the nomination. Yeah, Shaft is... In the 1990s, when there's an episode a comedic episode of the X-Files where Mulder is drugged. What is he singing? The theme from Shaft. None of the others. But about 25 years later, he's they, they're still referencing Shaft. Well, and when they um, remade it with Samuel Jackson, you know, a lot of times when they do reboots and remakes, they try to do rearrangements or updatings of the songs. And the makers of that film knew better and just left the original theme song alone. Yep. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that just, it stands out. It works. Speaking of bed noms and broomsticks, I do agree that it should have taken best special visual effects. Yes. Especially for that whole ending sequence with the, the march of the, the suits of armor and all of that. When they finally get the locomotion spell going, the Traguna Macoides Tricorum Satis D. But yeah, going through the rest of these, I haven't seen Andromeda Strain, Koch, or Summer of 42. But for film editing, I would take Clockwork Orange over the French Connection. Yeah, French Connection won because of that chase scene. Yeah. So that, you know, that's one of those things to where the award's kind of backed by 15 minutes out of a two-hour film, if you know what I mean. So. Yeah, which is kind of funny because they didn't file all the proper permits for the chase scene. And it ran longer than they had anticipated. So the moment where he narrowly misses the woman with the the baby stroller was very carefully choreographed and rehearsed. But a lot of the other near collisions were actual near collisions because he was driving outside the zone where they had been permitted to, to film it. They 
wanted more streets than they were given, so they just kept right on going and basically did the actual chase through real traffic. All right, so any other comments on the Academy Awards, or do we go to the Golden Globes? I don't have any other comments. All right, so the Golden Globes then. Best motion picture, drama, The French Connection beat out Clockwork Orange, Last Picture Show, Mary, Queen of Scots, and Summer of 42. Comedy or musical, Fiddler on the Roof, beat out The Boyfriend, Kacha, New Leaf, and Plaza Suite. So best performance in a drama, it was the same winners. So Gene Hackman beat Peter Finch. Here Malcolm McDowell was nominated for Clockwork Orange, as was Jack Nicholson for Carnal Knowledge and George C. Scott for The Hospital. So only three of those five names are common to both lists. Actress, yeah, Jane Fonda won for Clute, beating out Diane Cannon for Such Good Friends, Glenda Jackson for Mary Queen of Scots, Vanessa Redgrave for Mary Queen of Scots, and Jessica Walter for Play Misty for Me. For comedy and musical, uh, Best Actor went to Topple for Fiddler on the Roof, beating out Bud Court for Harold and Maude, Dean Jones for The Million Dollar Duck, Walter Matthau for Koch, and Gene Wilder for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Actress went to Twiggy for The Boyfriend, beating out Sandy Duncan for The Star-Spangled Girl, Ruth Gordon for Harold and Maude, Angela Lansbury for Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Elaine May for A New Leaf. Best Supporting Performance in a Motion Picture, that's drama or comedy musical, they combine it for the supporting roles. That went to Ben Johnson for The Last Picture Show, beating out Tom Baker for Nicholas and Alexandra, Art Garfunkel for Colonel Knowledge, Paul Mann for Fiddler on the Roof, and John Michael Vincent for Going Home. Supporting Actress, Anne Margaret won for Carnal Knowledge, beating out Ellen Burstein for The Last Picture Show, Cloris Leachman for The Last Picture Show, Diana Rigg for The Hospital, and Maureen Stapleton for Plaza Suite. Best Director, William Friedkin for The French Connection, beat out Peter Bogdanovich, Norman Jewison, Stanley Kubrick, and Robert Mulligan. Pretty much the same nominations we had for the Oscars. Best Screenplay, Hospital by Patty Chayowski, beat out French Connection, Clute, Koch, and Mary Queen of Scots. Best Original Score went to Isaac Hayes for Shaft, beating out Andromeda Screen, or Strain, Le Mans, Mary Queen of Scots, and Summer of 42. Best Original Song went to Life is What You Make It by Koch, beating out Long Ago Tomorrow from The Raging Moon, Rain Falls Anywhere It Wants To from The African Elephant, Something More from Honky, and The Theme from Shaft. Best Foreign Film in the English Language went to Sunday Bloody Sunday out of the United Kingdom, beating out The African Elephant, Friends, The Go-Between, The Red Tent, and The Raging Moon. Uh, the Red Tent was an Italy, or Italy-USSR uh, collaboration, the rest of the United Kingdom. Best Foreign Film in a Foreign Language went to The Policeman Out of Israel, beating out Claire's Knee, The Conformist, Tchaikovsky, and To Die of Love. New Star of the Year actor went to Desi Arnaz Jr. for The Red Sky at Morning, beating out Tom Baker as Rasputin and Nicholas and Alexandra. Timothy Bottoms, or Bottoms as Johnny Got His Gun, Gary Grimes for Summer 42, Richard Roundtree as Shaft, and John Sarno for The Seven Minutes. And yes, this Tom Baker is the fourth Doctor Tom Baker. A new Star of the Year actress went to Twiggy for The Boyfriend, beating out Sandy Duncan for The Million Dollar Duck, Sybil Shepherd for The Last Picture Show, Janet Susman for Nicholas and Alexandra, and Dolores Taylor for Billy Jack. For the Television Awards... Best Series Drama went to Mannix, beating out Marcus Welby, MD, Medical Center, The Mod Squad, and O'Hara, U.S. Treasury. Best Series Comedy or Musical, All in the Family, beat out The Carol Burnett Show, Flip Wilson Show, Mary Tyler Moore Show, and The Partridge Family. 
Best Television Film went to The Snow Goose, beating out Brian's song, Duel, The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, and The Last Child. So, Which is funny, because Brian's song and Duel are the two that are still part of the conversation. Uh, Duel was directed by Steven Spielberg. Well, and The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, you could almost call it The Walton's Pilot. Okay. Best Actor in a Drama Series went to Robert Young for Marcus Welby, M.D., Beating out Raymond Burr for Ironside, Mike Connors for Mannix, William Conrad for Cannon, and Peter Falk for Columbo, which would have been my choice. Best Actress in a Drama went to Patricia Neal for The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, which, actually now that I highlight it, Wikipedia does link it to the Waltons. Yeah, it's, the cast is not the same, and I think it was like a Sunday night TV movie or something like that. And when I say the cast is not the same, a lot of the kids are the same, but uh, Patricia Neal, for example, did not play Grandma Walton in um, the TV show, and a different actor played John Walton. So like I said, the cast wasn't exactly the same, but it was it was the same characters in the same setting. And then after the success of the TV movie, they tweaked it and launched the series, so... I feel it's worth noting just because, you know, a TV movie that launches, you know, a nine-season TV series has got some credibility to it. Again, you know, mm-hmm. not saying that the Snow Goose is bad, but I, I kind of feel that puts it at least in the same territory as Brian's song. You, you know what I mean? So, Yeah, I didn't realize the connection because, honestly, I'm not familiar with the Waltons. For some reason, it was preempted when it was supposed to be aired. For the Canadian station. So normally, for Canadian station to preempt the U.S. station, it has to be airing the same episode of the same show. So when our ABC feed had syndicated Star Trek The Next Generation on at the same time of day as the Edmonton feed, the Edmonton feed could preempt the U.S. feed if it was the same episode. But when they got out of sync for one reason or another, they stopped preempting. So we got the individual ones just to support local commercials or something. I'm not sure why that is. The only exception I've seen to that is the Waltons. And when that was supposed to be aired, it was preempted consistently, but not by the Waltons. Oh. So I've never actually seen an episode, but for some reason the Waltons didn't air in Canada. And I don't know why. I have the Waltons on the brain because, you know, we covered To Kill a Mockingbird a little bit a while back, the year that it was nominated. And I uh, have just saw the... um, Turing production of Aaron Sworkin's version of To Kill a Mockingbird, which had Mary Badham, who was scout in the uh, 1962 film in a minor role, but um, kind of the one of the lead characters from The Waltons, Richard Thomas, who a lot of people know as Bill from the TV miniseries It, was playing the Atticus role in that production, so... I kind of have the Waltons on the brain because I've seen one of the stars of it very recently. Okay. Anyway, so getting back to Best Actress Drama, we know Patricia Neal won. She beat out Linda Day George for Mission Impossible, Peggy Lipton for The Mod Squad, Denise Nicholas for Room 222, and Susan St. James for Macmillan and Wife. It's interesting because technically what she won for wasn't a drama series yet, but... Yeah, it... There was the whole backdoor pilot movie thing that was going on in the 70s with a lot of ones that were attempts to get 
Marvel superheroes on the air, and I think The Incredible Hulk was the only one that actually succeeded in turning into a series for that. Although there was a Spider-Man series, I just don't think that started with a backdoor pilot film. Yeah, it, it didn't. So, Best Actor in Comedy or Musical Series? Carol O'Connor took it home for All in the Family, beating out Herschel Bernardi for Arnie, Jack Klugman for The Odd Couple, Dick Van Dyke for The New Dick Van Dyke Show, and Flip Wilson for The Flip Wilson Show. Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical Series went to Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, beating out Lucille Ball in Here's Lucy, Shirley Jones for The Partridge Family, Gene Stapleton for All in the Family, and Mary Tyler Moore in The Mary Tyler Moore Show. That one I might have gone with Gene Stapleton. I'd have to review which season that was. But Best Supporting Actor went to Ed Asner for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, beating out James Brolin for Marcus Welby, M.D., Harvey Korman for The Carol Burnett Show, Rob Reiner for All in the Family, and Milburn Stone for Gunsmoke. And Best Supporting Actress went to Sue Ann Langdon for Arnie, Amanda Blake for Gunsmoke, Gail Fisher for Mannix, Sally Struthers for All in the Family, and Lily Tomlin for Rona Martin's Laugh-In. So all four leads from All in the Family got nominated, but only Carol O'Connor won. And I did a quick little look up. It was the um, first season. Okay. Yeah, that that was a strong year. I'll make one comment. You mentioned that the Tom Baker who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama was, you know, the Doctor Who Tom Baker. You and I are both Doctor Who fans, and I've got a ton of reference material on the show. And just off of the top of my head, almost everything covering the Fourth Doctor's era lists this as one of the films that he was in. But I don't remember any of them mentioning that he was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for it. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is because the Golden Globes don't have the same level of respect as the Oscars. Yeah. If it was an Oscar nomination, they probably would have brought it up. All right, so shall we go through how these films have been remembered? Yes. So, looking at the IMDb user votings, of our nominees, the highest rated film is A Clockwork Orange, coming in at number five for the year, which would have been my pick for Best Picture. And I know, Trey, you said not French Connection, but you didn't. I don't think you said what you would have chosen instead. It probably would have been a toss-up between A Clockwork Orange and The Last Picture Show. And it's one of those things to where they're just completely different movies, so it's kind of hard to compare them. I'll go ahead and say Clockwork Orange, but on a different day I may pick Last Picture Show. Well, The Last Picture Show is the next highest rated on IMDb, coming in at number 10, followed immediately by Fiddler on the Roof. At number 11, The French Connection comes in at number 23, and Nicholas and Alexandra finishes it up at number 64. So I'm going to ask you this for both lists. Where does Dirty Harry rank? Because I believe that was 71 as well. Uh, that was number 24. Number 24, so... So that's... Here it's one notch below the French Connection. Okay. Going through the complete list... We've got uh, actually some Romanian films coming in in the top two. And then there's Michael the Brave, which also appears to be a foreign film. Gentleman of Fortune. Again, seems to have a lot of Russian names. So it looks like A Clockwork Orange is the highest rated English language film. We then have Twelve Chairs, Anon, Demons, The Emigrants, Last Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, Harold and Maud is probably the... That looks like it's the strongest film that was not nominated. And then Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory comes in at number 15. 
Although I think some of that might be some childhood nostalgia boosting that. Yes. Seeing that for the first time as an adult, I get why kids would have loved it if you're coming in and enjoying the book, but I, I don't think it should be as high as it is compared to the others. Now, looking at it on the I am or on Letterboxd, Clockwork Orange is still the highest rated English language film or the highest rated of the nominees at number four for the year. And the last picture show comes in at number six. Harold and Maude does show up before other nominees. We've got Fiddler on the Roof. That would be number 17. French Connection is number 25. And Nicholas and Alexandra does not appear to be in the top 72. And where does Dirty Harry rank? Okay, there you go. That's in that last row, 12th row. So that's number 63 for Dirty Harry. The reason why I'm asking is I felt like Dirty Harry had the more lasting impact from a, a genre perspective. You know, you had two very different police action thrillers that came out in the same year. And I, I think while French Connection won the Best Picture Award and most film lovers, whether they be more populist like IMDb or more cinephiles like Letterboxd, um, prefer French Connection over Dirty Harry, I think Dirty Harry had the more lasting impact on the genre and film over the next, let's say, 10, 20 years after this. Yeah, I would think yeah, Dirty Harry and Sudden Impact, these are movies that are quoted and they are part of the conversation far more often. And I was looking for Nicholas and Alexandra here. So there's 72 results per page and I am not yet seeing it at the end of the third page of results. Wow, okay. It's got an average rating of 3.2 out of 5 and page 3 ends at 3.5. So... Page four ends with 3.49, so it's it's pretty deep down. I wonder if it's... I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we, we've both seen things to where films are rated at 4.9 and 10 people have watched and logged them, right? But uh, I wonder if that's a true reflection of the quality or if it's just a film that not many people have seen. It could be. Letterboxd doesn't seem to use the Bayesian statistics that IMDb does. Bayesian statistics, meaning if you've got a film that's rated 4.5 because you've got one vote at 4 and one vote at 5 versus a film that's rated at 4.5 because you've had 10,000 votes, well, then that one with 10,000 votes is going to have a lot more weight and show up higher on the list than the one with two votes. So it's weighted according to the average score of all the films in the report and the number of people voting for it. So the more statistically significant the rating by having more voters, the higher it'll creep up the list, assuming that that is accurate. If everyone's saying it's a one, it's going to go down the list. So essentially it places a higher value on the ones that have been seen by a lot of people. I don't know that Letterboxd does anything similar. I think it just flat out averages it. And then the, the films that don't have enough votes to show up, they do have a minimum threshold. They just get dumped on the average for the year. So if the average for the year is above 3.2, which it seems to be, we've got, it looks like a good 40 or 50 movies at least in the middle or at the end of page four here that don't have any rating appearing at all because they don't have enough votes. Mm. So if you're below that average and it seems like Nicholas and Alexandria is just barely below that average, it get 
everything that doesn't have enough votes just shows up in the middle of the list. So it's happened a couple of times. I think the first time I saw this was with Cavalcade, where it was well below average, so it got dumped very, very deep in the pages. So, who would we recommend this to? I would recommend it to people who like Gene Hackman. I do think it's a strong performance for him. And I'd recommend it to people who like police procedurals. Even with some of the pacing issues we called out, you know, the joke I made at the front about it needing the um, law and order sting was kind of intentional. It it does feel like a proto-law and order episode in a lot of ways, just without the courtroom part. So if you enjoy law and order and like, like the police procedural at the first half of it you'd probably enjoy french connection yeah i would i would agree i don't want to seem too down on it i mean i did say that malcolm mcdowell should have been part of the conversation for best actor but i actually have no problems with gene hackman winning because it was a really good performance i just think malcolm mcdowell was an omission from the ballot Mm -hmm. it is a good movie so i have no issues with this being nominated for best picture i just don't think it should have been the winner so again i would Recommended as you did for people who like the police procedurals. It does have that documentary style. So if you want to see that style of filmmaking and one of the early examples of it, absolutely check it out. And we both, I think, enjoyed it a lot more the first time viewing, which might be why it ended up winning. Because I can't imagine in the days before home video, there were a lot of people who were doing repeat viewings before they did the votes. Mm-hmm. And while I think Clockwork Orange improves on repeat viewings, I think this suffers, just because it is a bit uneven. But the high points are really high. Yeah, especially if you're trying to watch it at a point in time to where you're unlikely to have the opportunity to watch it straight through uninterrupted. Yeah. It is one of those films that has a tone that you need to settle in. I would even recommend if if you see this showing up on broadcast television skip it because inserting commercials is going to ruin the film in a lot of ways you really do need to see it continuously when you could focus on it do you have any closing thoughts before we tell people what to expect next month no like you i i you know i do kind of want to cap it off by saying it is a good movie i i did enjoy it if it sounds like i'm down on it it kind of like paul says sometime on it, it, it's Jaws. When you're reviewing it critically, you start to find all the flaws in your favorite children, so to speak. And, you know, just so happens this film's got a couple of flaws, but not enough to where I would say don't watch it. Okay. So, next up, the next winner of Best Picture is The Godfather, which is definitely still part of the cultural conversation. People are looking to compare. It beat out Cabaret, Deliverance, The Emigrants, and Sounder. Now, The Emigrants is one we have been discussing a little bit this year because its first international release was 1971, so that's the year it's listed in on both IMDb and Letterboxd. But it was a Swedish film that didn't air in Los Angeles until 1972. So 1972 is its year of eligibility. Yeah, I would say at least three of those are still culturally relevant. I, I don't think Cabaret or Deliverance get talked about anywhere near as much as The Godfather, but I I still hear people talk about them. Yeah, they are definitely still part of the conversation. 
and just skimming ahead at the letterbox list, there's there's a few other films that are still part of the conversation that are not on that nominations list. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Might go scanning the best foreign language film to see what wins there. But anyway, join us next month when we discuss The Godfather. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.